Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Powell and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In our last episode, Steve defended the epic Barry Lyndon to Dan, who thought it was an epic bore, and Dan defended The Expendables to Steve, who argued it was ripe for the cinematic dustbin. In this episode, we look at neo-noir and the action thriller. Steve defends the George V. Higgins adaptation, killing them softly to Dan, who regarded it as slow torture. Meanwhile, Dan risks becoming part of a persecuted minority by having some good things to say about Taken 3. Enjoy, and beware spoilers ahead. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and um, welcome to Highbrow Lowbow, uh, episode two. Um, my highbrow pick for this week is Killing Them Softly. It's uh, it was made in 2012. And it is a neo-noir crime film based on the novel Coogan's Trade by George V. Higgins. So the plot is that a couple of kind of deadbeat, drug-addled, um, you know, down-on-the-luck losers uh, decide on a very dangerous get-rich-quick scheme, and that is to rip off a mob-protected card game. So obviously in Boston. Um, so the mob is furious about this. They bring in Brad Pitt as the hype killer to crack the case and um, basically kill everybody responsible. And that's where it kind of begins to tail off a bit and it follows several narrative strands. And you're never quite sure which one is supposed to be the main one. Uh, but um, they're all quite interesting. Brad Pitt decides, for instance, that he needs to take out the referee of the card game, if you like, the Ray Liotta, because he, he believes Ray Liotta is, is in on it or, or may have been in on it. And he actually, Brad Pitt brings in another killer from out of town that he knows, played by James Gandolfini, but that doesn't work out because Gandolfini is too much of a loose cannon. And there's a certain waiting for God who kind of um, vibe to their interaction in, in that much of this film is, although it should be a tightly plotted crime filler, actually it does become somewhat inert in places because it takes a long time for things to be paid off. I, I think it's a terrific crime thriller. I'm, I'm giving it a somewhat guarded recommendation, guarded highbrow recommendation, because the story is told almost entirely through dialogue and um, the violence only comes here and now. But that is loyal to the novels that Judge V. Higgins produced, particularly as his first few, this, the, Coogan's Trade, the one that's based on, and also The Friends of Eddie Coyle, also filmed, um, and uh, The Digger's Game. Those were his three famous ones, bestsellers, and, and then, sadly, he began to lose his touch, and um, his, his, his novels became so dialogue-addled that they became unreadable. Although, um, the critic, and also a friend of mine, Woody Hort, is, is a fan of some of the later novels, like Kennedy for the Defense. And Higgins died prematurely of a heart attack at 59 years old. But, you know, it is, a, it, it, it is a terrific crime thriller. It's got a great cast, Brad Pitt, Ray Liotta, James Gandolfini, uh, Ben Mendelsohn is one of the two um, drug-addled deadbeats, and his scenes are fantastic. I'll give you one example of one of his scenes. He's, he's so high on drugs that you half expect him to drop dead at any second. And there's one scene where you're almost kind of in his brain. It's a kind of point-of-view scene. And you can hear and feel him lurching and every step and every exertion is obviously so painful to him because he's wasted away his body on drugs that you feel like he's going to keel over any second. And, and that's how 
the, the scene plays out it's almost just like it's it's kind of fuzzy and it's it's sluggish um so th there's a lot of kind of good experimentation going on it got some great reviews but it seemed like it just hacked off a lot of people um i remember seeing it with you dan and uh, a colleague of ours was, was sat behind us um and he was moaning through the entire film and that's just an example of how this film tends to divide people so that's that's my highbrow recommendation of the week killing them softly um I think if, if you like neo-noir, if you like crime films, you're going to love this. But just be aware that it, it has this kind of um, dialogous uh, method of storytelling. And, you know, if, if you don't like dialogue, if you don't like watching people talking, then I wouldn't recommend, you know, My Dinner with Andre. I, I probably wouldn't recommend Killing Them Softly either. So I'd, I'd say go into it with an open mind and you might, you might find it's, it's a film that really works for you. Okay. Um, I'd forgotten it was that one that our, our colleague was uh, droning in your ear behind you. Did you not feel like killing him softly or not so softly? Well, I did, but I, I said to him afterwards, I was just like, you do realise you were talking all the way through that. And he was very apologetic. He said he didn't realise he was doing it. <laughs> but there you, there you go. This is, this is a heavy dialogue film, inspired yeah. dialogue in, in someone who should have kept his trap shut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is another one I definitely fell asleep in uh, just what you were saying about you know bringing james gallofini being a loose cannon since when did bringing so tony soprano into any plan guarantee success you know <laughs> tony soprano is, is 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 much more of a is, is a full-blown mob boss you know yeah. and, and very adept at survival whereas whereas gandolfini is playing a very different type of criminal i, I mean a, a guy who's past his prime and 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 you know a real liability and Gandolfina, I believe, uh, was quite pacifist in his in his views and began to resent being typecast as a a mobster. Whoops. So it's I should also say it's produced by Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's production company, and Brad Pitt has, has the lead role in it. If if you could call it a lead, because it's kind of an ensemble piece, uh, but. Uh, I believe they also produced uh, The Departed, so they're pretty good at making films on the Boston underworld. Its portrayal of Boston is pretty grim, and there's a lot because um, it, it was made in 2012, or I think it's set just after Barack Obama's election victory in 2008, and the film is very cynical. It, it, it implies that absolutely nothing will change. There's no ground, really, for hope because just because a, a progressive-minded politician and the first first african-american to be elected president has, has, has gained office it's it is a cynical film but maybe you know the times are quite cynical so maybe it plays better now than it did it's been 10 years since we went to see it dan <laughs> i remember that night quite distinctly <laughs> time flies <laughs> oh, that long ago oh my goodness right. what were your problem was it the dialogue um what i mean i always thought one of the golden rules of movies was show don't tell so you have Brad Pitt telling us about all this almighty gun battle he was in. Why not just show us? That was part of the problem. It is not just the dialogue, but the fact the the method of exposition was just somebody telling you the story. And I thought that's usually what happens, you know, when you read a book. But yeah. I just thought it's it's like a visual audio book. This why not just show us what's happening? This is one of the things that puts me off Tarantino from time to time as well. It's just some of the scenes are just so dialogue heavy, and you just think. Forgive me, but I'm sitting in the cinema. If I wanted to watch something with a lot of dialogue, I'd just <laughs> turn on BBC Four. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, there's a Tarantino connection, actually. Um, oh, okay. Because 
Higgins debut novel, the one that made him um, a kind of literary superstar, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, the first line is, uh, Jackie Brown at 26 with no expression on his face wanted to buy some guns. Uh, and then when Tarantino was adapting Elmo Lennon's novel, Rum Punch, the main character in that is, is called Jackie Burke, where he, he changed her name to Jackie Brown, played by Pam Greer, as, as a little nod to Higgins. But yes, I, 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 you know, I think um, Higgins' career went off the rails because dialogue just began to replace plot hmm. after a while. And um, yeah, you could certainly level that charge at Mr. Tarantino. Yeah. So that was the, and also the director, Andrew Dominic, um, I didn't, it was only recently I've discovered this, but he previously directed Chopper. Have yes. you seen Chopper? Yes, yeah. I, and I, I just thought, you know, for a kind of movie, which is just so completely off its rocker, uh, I, mean, I mean, the main character is not exactly, you know, <laughs> level-headed, shall we say, but Eric Banner plays him brilliantly. And I thought, for somebody who directed that brilliant movie, and then this is just lifeless i just thought i thought i thought it could have been so much more to be honest i remember it vividly but i've never revisited it and um i would say even if you didn't like this one do sit down and watch the friends of eddie coyle hmm. uh directed by peter yates because that's generally regarded as a as a perfect adaptation the, the dialogue isn't too overwhelming that, that that there's a better balance between between storytelling action and 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 good, good crisp dialogue. I mean, it's it's criminal speaking, and I think what Higgins knew because he, he was he was a lawyer and he held you know several um, you know positions um, in, in in the law, is that people, especially criminals, tend to talk around the subject. They don't discuss things directly, and maybe criminals do it more because they they're always paranoid they're being listened in on. So obviously that that can be quite entertaining to listen to, especially with people like Devin Mamet and have, have done it very well. It, it can also get on, um, it can also get on your nerves. But I, I'd say, yeah, do the Friends of Eddie Coyle, I, I think is is now regarded pretty much as a masterpiece. So Robert Mitchum and uh, is, is the lead, is some, some great roles and support to Richard Jordan. Um, and um, whereas this one tends to divide people, and I understand that because it's it's not for everyone, that's for sure. But I think it's great that you know they took a risk on it, and maybe maybe Brad Pitt deserves plaudits here because I think without a star vehicle, a star producing and you know adding his um, name to give the film some commercial viability, it just wouldn't be made. Because it's such a niche um, novel and script, you reckon Hollywood wouldn't have touched it had Brad Pitt not got involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the novel must have been, the film was made about 40 years after the novel was published. Mm -hmm. And that just shows you what it's like for even a big star. And my novel's not saying that Brad Pitt would have done this for 40 years or anything, but, you know, even, even when a big star loves a book, it, it's very hard to bring it to the screen, especially now. I think in the 70s, it was a lot easier. You know, whenever there was a kind of airport bestseller, pretty soon there'd be a film. Often with very little thought as to what would make a good film as opposed to what would make a good book. Whereas now in Hollywood, you know, let's be honest, the money is a lot tighter. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it's, just a, it's just a relentless struggle. It's, it's, it's often a case of, well, I'll do this superhero movie if, if maybe you give me the backing to do this other film or you take, uh, you take money off uh, 
various sources. And of course, if you go down that route, you go down the kind of Orson Welles route in Europe, you know, where you, did you ever see these kind of usually Euro, Euro trash thrillers and, and the opening credits come up and it's a Franco, Belgian, Swiss, UK, yeah. Italian, Serbian co-production. You're like, oh dear. <laughs> it's like they shoot a bit, they run out of money, they go get the money, they shoot a bit more. And you know, we, we forget just how hard, how hard it is to make a movie. I mean, we yeah. literally to finance a movie to make a movie and then you've got to worry about, is it going to be any good? <laughs> That's true. But once you've gone to all that effort, will people actually like it? Will people actually go and see it? Yeah. 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 So say, um, just as a with the Tarantino connection, what difference do you think Tarantino would have made to it if he directed it instead of Dominic? Well, that's a good question because Tarantino, if nothing else, he tends to be unpredictable and he's been doing a lot of genre hopping. And I know he's, he's one, he's always said he's wanted to make a Western and he's wanted to make a war film and he has. Uh, I've no idea what he'll do next, uh, but I would say that Jackie Brown is actually Tarantino's best film. Mm-hmm. And you see, Elmore Leonard was very close with George V. Higgins. In fact, some would go as far as to say that Leonard owed, owed um, George V. Higgins his success ah. because, uh, I mean, Elmore Leonard had been successful writing pulpy westerns in the uh, 50s and 60s. Um, is it free tent to humor, five tent to humor? Uh, that's actually on the Leonard Hombra. But, but then the market dried up for Westerns and he, he switched to crime and he was having kind of middling success. And then he said the Friends of Eddie Coyle came out and it blew his mind. He suddenly realized that he could write a story, a crime story, and not have to ape Chandler or or Hammett or, or Jameson Kane or any of the, uh, the kind of 1930s hard-boiled uh, stars. Uh, he could tell stories through dialogue and, and Leonard's novels um, owe a lot to Higgins, although Leonard managed to sustain his success for much longer, even when Amor Leonard, his writing began to slip, uh, say around either the mid-90s or early noughties, I felt like he just started repeating himself. I, he still had, by that time, he had such a loyal fan base that they, they'd buy anything he, he churned out. And he's been one, when, when we're talking about Hollywood here, there are a lot more Elmore Leonard adaptations than there are than the two Higgins adaptations I mentioned. There's, um, I've mentioned Jackie Brown is probably the best of them, and I think it's Tarantino's best film. And there's also, I mean, they thought they just churned them out. There's two, there's two versions of The Big Bounce, both of which are supposed to be terrible. Anyway, to get back to your question, what would Tarantino have done with it? Mm-hmm. I think he probably would have messed it up more because. Tarantino's films are longer and more indulgent. And I was looking at the running time for this film and it's actually only about a hundred minutes long, you know, which, which is quite tight really. And especially today with the ticket prices, what they are, most people want a longer film, you know, to justify the cost of the ticket. Whereas multiplexes want a shorter film so they can show it more times than night. Yeah, yeah. These are some of the quandaries facing the industry. Um, this was, of course, I mean, 2012, when did Netflix come in? So Ooh. Killing Them Softly would have been pre-streaming. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there was some sort of primitive form of streaming by then, but, uh, you know, streaming has con- turned con- everything completely on its head because people are less inclined to go to the cinema, mm-hmm. especially with COVID. But at the same time, or we might just be passing the Netflix boom because Netflix had so much money that movie stars were just, you know, turning up at their door, just begging them to um, green light whatever project. And more, times, more often than not, they did. I mean, mm-hmm. Scorsese said he took the Irishman to every single studio 
in Hollywood. And they all said no. They didn't want to pay for the de-aging process, which is really expensive, but Netflix said yes. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. And as Netflix begins to lose a bit, bit of its luster and COVID recedes, I wonder if the cinemas will be packed again. I'm not sure. Okay. That'd be interesting to see, um, because that is the kind of film that probably would have been picked up on Netflix, um, Killing Them Softly as a Netflix premiere, I imagine. Any other Higgins adaptations, as well as um, that one and The Friends of Eddie Coyle? No, I think that's it. I think that's it. If uh, the, the Digger's Game would be a good one. Um, that was his second novel. His, his, his novels always end very abruptly uh, on, a, on a line of dialogue, which is usually quite... Um, almost kind of flippant and, and killing him softly does but here I've just got the synopsis Jerry Digger Doherty is an ex-con and proprietor of a working man's Boston bar who supplements his income with the occasional odd job like stealing life checks and picking up hot goods his brother's a priest his wife's a nag and he's got a deadly appetite for martinis and gambling <laughs> so so that's the synopsis but I, I remember reading it for it was tremendous fun his criminals are always at, at the bottom of the ladder and you know, think you, when you think of the, when when he was writing the great crime films, well, one of the greatest crime films of all time in the cinema at the time was um, The Godfather, mm -hmm. and that that was completely different because the, the gangsters are portrayed as aristocrats. They've got a hierarchical structure, and the, the, the bloodlines are really important. They they speak in riddles, and I mean, yeah, the, they also talk around the subject, but in a kind of almost like a Shakespearean sense. Um, uh, and the violence is almost like a ballet. Higgins is almost completely different from, from that. But, you know, that's the market because at the same time, the James Bond films were, were just kicking off in the 60s. You know, John le Carre was writing uh, and his novels are really successful, the complete opposite. And Len Dayton and Harry Palmer, uh, Len Dayton's creation, Harry Palmer, is almost the complete opposite of Bond. So there's always, you know, when you have two polar opposites, you know, that's kind of good because the, the, they're just feeding the appetite of, you know, different people on the market. So, and, and you might just like both of them. So, <laughs> but is, is there anything, um, I don't know if I've sold it to you, Dan, 10 years down the line, <laughs> um, selling it softly. Um, uh, not gone in guns blazing, but I, 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 was there anything you liked about it or that intrigued you that would make you watch it again? And give it yeah, the bit, the bit where it said the end, that was quite good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was concise. A lot of the other talk wasn't so concise. <laughs> no, um, actually, I, I did enjoy it. I mean, the cast were good, and when there was a bit of action in it, it was good. It was just like I thought, listening to Brad Pitt, tell what happened i just thought this should be all show don't tell i mean a bit of voiceover narration to ex explain what's going on why not but let's see this gun battle that you've just told us about let's see this big thing that you're sitting around talking about it's you know cinema's a visual medium so let's see these things that was my only um i mean it's, it's a good story i just thought the way it was being told was extremely plodding and whereas it might work in a book it just like say being a visual medium you need to you need to get your eyes need to be stimulated you know you know, last week I said Barry Lyndon. If you're a Kubrick fan, Barry Lyndon might be the one Kubrick film you haven't seen yet. If you're a big crime film fan, this one might have slipped by you. It's currently on Amazon Prime. Uh, in, we're talking in June 2022 here. But, um, you, you know, I, I'd say give it a try. Give it a try. You, you, it, it might just work for you. And, and obviously they did do some attempts to update the story to the to the noughties, teenies um, political climate with the references to Obama. 
yeah, I mean, you know, it was written during the Nixon presidency. So, and and uh, I think Higgins was a critic of Nixon. Um, so there was a lot of cynicism in seventies America, and and some of that is up, updates pretty well. You know, you just change the presidents, and um, uh, but everything's everything seems to stay the same. But anyway, um, okay, well, I've done my best. I have I have valiantly <laughs> argued and. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be interesting to hear what what more our listeners have to say about it. Whether whether anyone hated it first time round or came round to it, or or whether anybody loved it and you made them hate it, <laughs> <laughs> or whether our erstwhile colleague remembers anything of it. To be honest with you, yeah. I mean, I'm so sorry you had to put you had to be put up with you know put up with that. It wouldn't have been so bad for me, I suppose, because I was would have just fallen asleep. But anyway, hopefully you you've never had a cinema experience like it. Uh, before or since well, well i'd be more inclined to give that one another go than i would barry Lyndon. i you know i'm just i'm never going to watch barry Lyndon again full stop and nothing you say will change my mind but i would certainly give that one another go if it's on um amazon i might have another look at it okay all right yeah, I'll, con- yeah. I'll, con- I'll concede that steve I'll okay concede. well i will take that as a partial victory and uh... <laughs> Okay. All right. So, shall I um, drag the, the the intellectual conversation rapidly downhill with my choice now? <laughs> By all means, yeah. Okay. Right. So, I'm choosing this one partly because Steve, Steve and I, you, both of us went to see it in the cinema, and it's taken three. Now, I'm going to be, the first thing I'm going to say is it's not the best of the trilogy. In fact, it's the worst. But the reason why I've chosen it is because it was the first one both of us had seen on the big screen. Now, if you remember, Steve, we were planning to go and see Taken 2, but it was sold out, so we saw Everything or Nothing instead, which, yeah. in fact, I think was a better night out because it's a brilliant documentary. So... The premise of Taken is basically that somebody's kidnapped and Brian Mills with his special set of skills goes in to kidnap, you know, to rescue them. Now, in Taken 3, everybody was saying, well, nobody's kidnapped. And that's right, nobody is kidnapped. But somebody dies, so their life is taken, see? So I thought that was an interesting twist. Now, I was, I got I got warned about over-spoiling. Now, obviously, if you're listening to this and us discussing the movies, they are going to anticipate a bit of spoilers, so I'm not going to over-spoil this one, but simply to say that in this third one, Brian Mills, with his special skills, is um, framed for the murder of somebody, and he has to obviously find out who did it and clear his name. And (laughs) where is the first one? I mean, I, I laugh because it is so ridiculous, to be honest with you. I mean, you remember Forrest Whitaker always twirling around that night chess piece every time he was thinking, and then he'd slam it down on the desk every time he came to a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you remember the scene with the bagels? Oh, yeah. Uh, he's doing kind of, he's in, yeah, he's in the donut shop and he's doing a kind of Sherlock Holmes thing. That yeah. Someone comes to collect him, one of his colleagues, and he's kind of like, what are you doing? But he's having a, he's having a kind of epiphany moment, you know, he's like yeah. Holmes with his uh, violin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's it. You know, it's, I just thought it's like privatized suits corner has just crash landed into taken three over a bunch of bagels and to be fair when i was watching him eat his bagels i thought oh, i'm feeling a bit hungry but um i didn't have any bagels so i made some toast <laughs> yeah. so he's munching away in his bagels trying to put all the pieces together which is kind of screamingly obvious um and uh you know that's the thing at the crime scene he opens the bagels and has a munch and nobody says to him um detective that could be evidence that you're eating you know but hey it's forrest whitaker you don't say that to forrest whitaker so um, uh, no. well, presumably he would have been the 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 the, the pay, 
slip must have been huge for this one for for everyone involved actually to keep to keep the franchise going well i some of the conditions were that uh, Liam Neeson said, I'm not going to, you know, nobody gets kidnapped because that just looks like bad parenting, uh, which is true. And secondly, um, he insisted on in doing his own stunts. Now, I know um, Taken basically generated act, the, the man that is action Liam, because yeah. before that he was doing like historic things, voiceovers, um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then Taken was meant to be a kind of small little Euro thriller using the kind of credits that you mentioned, you know, a Franco-European, Franco-British, Italian co-production. And Liam thought it was going to bomb, but he would get to spend four months in Paris, so why not do it? And, of course, it was an absolute breakout success and gave us Action Liam, who then went on to do, you know, Clash of the Titans. I'm just having a look here. Unknown, um, The Grey, Battleship, uh, Run All Night, Non-Stop. Oh, it just it just keeps going. Yeah, I'm walking among the tombstones. And... Walking along, yes. So so action suddenly action Liam was born. So the A-team? The, well, yes. Let's just not go there, please. Yeah. Have you seen it, the A Team movie? No, no. I mean, maybe as a kid, I loved the TV show. Well, don't see the movie then, okay? Because then it'll just. He tries his best to be George Peppard, but only George Peppard can do George Peppard. And it's, yeah, it's everything you loved about the TV series. You can't remake stuff like that. It just, it can't be done. So just don't bother, really. Just, no. Go and watch, um, I don't know, um, Run All Night looks pretty good. If you want to see some action, Liam, or non-stops, pretty good as well. Yeah. If well, you want to. Sorry, just to go back to TV series being ruined. I think the big one for me of a TV show I loved, and the film was dire, was The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Oh, I didn't even bother with that. How yes. bad was it? It was awful because, I mean, if, it was, if they just called it any generic spy film, a spy title, and had two agents, one Russian, one American, it might have worked. But, you know, The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was witty and fizzy and had verve and great chemistry. And was of its time because, it, it, as Robert Vaughan has admitted, it was James Bond for television. Mm. And it was the Cold War. And um, even though this, they tried to recreate the period, because I think it's vaguely the 1960s, you can tell with the kind of beehive haircuts and, and stuff like that. It, there's no chemistry. It, it's, 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 guy, it's Guy Ritchie, so you know it's not exactly oh. going to be very witty. You know, it's, uh, There's no involvement for Robert Vaughan or David McCallum. That they weren't even they weren't invited to do a cameo. Oh really? Uh, oh dear. Yeah, and um, and Robert Vaughan was living in London at the time, and it, they were shooting like round the corner from his house. I was just like, how disrespectful can you get? Um, but anyway, so I've gone on a sidetrack there, but I, I just wanted to reiterate the point you make about if if you love a TV show, I don't know. Are there any exceptions where they actually got it right? No. I can think of plenty where they got it wrong. The Miami Vice movie was one. Um, the Equalizer was another one they shouldn't have bothered with. Oh, God, how could we forget the Avengers movie? I mean, not the uh, not Avengers Assemble. I mean, the one with um, Sean Connery and Ralph Fiennes and Uma Thurman. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That was a misfire on so many levels. I, I think that was up there with one of the biggest... Um biggest flops in history because I think it basically did a chinemo to the director's career because I think he'd previously done Benny and June yeah. which had been an indie hit and and someone had said hey 
would you like to make a film with a proper budget? Um, it's got to be, it's, you know, it's, we'll give you the script. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to do what we tell you. And then, of course, he gets the blame. Yes. That's how yeah. I know. Um, anyway, back to Brian Mills and his special set of skills. Um, I'm surprised they have never actually used that as a, a line of dialogue in any of them. I'm Brian Mills and I've got a special set of skills. Anyway, Brian Mills and his special skills. Uh, I, I didn't bother with the TV series because I just thought Liam Neeson inhabits that rule so well. And certainly if he phoned me up and said, I will find you and I will kill you, I'd just say to him, just tell me where to meet your big lad and make it quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't argue. So yeah. taken three. Anyway, so he's on the streets. He's um, He's doing his own stunts. Which is fine, except Liam's in his 60s. And do you remember the scene where he's being chased by a copper who's like 20 something? Yes, I do. And I he... remember there was a lot of imaginative shooting around him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought um, he's somehow able to outrun a copper on foot and also a police car. Um, and the other thing that took me ages, and I know I said last week I'm not a cultural knucklehead, but I did feel incredibly stupid about this. Um, his ex wife's new partner. In the first film, first two films is played by Sandra Barkley or Barkley, um, one of those faces who you see everywhere, like um, Titus Welver before he got the role in Bosch. He, you know, he's a familiar face, and and then Dugray Scott. Uh, it took me ages to work out that Dugray Scott was playing that character. He'd been recast. <laughs> Yeah. I just thought, where's the original one? What's Duke Ray Scott doing in this? It turns out um, scheduling conflicts were the reason behind that. Now, that could well be true, because Xander, when you look at his um, his filmography, it is quite full. Or, or it may well be he saw the script and decided not to bother. Who knows? But it took me a while to work out that Duke Ray Scott was him recast, which I just thought, how could I have missed that? Anyway. Well, here's the thing, Dibba, I want to ask you, because... Yeah. I'm going to be honest, I didn't hate the film. In fact, mm. I thought it was passably entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, the, the people who I spoke to afterwards who really did hate it, I noticed they were people who'd loved the franchise from the start. Mm -hmm. And their argument was that it was completely insulting, dire end, you know, to a franchise. It mm -hmm. was, you know, like the Die Hard Five or something. You couldn't end on a worse one. And Yeah. And I guess... That's why when I realised that the reason I didn't hate it was I wasn't that emotionally involved with these characters. Um, mm. But but obviously you do quite like this franchise or admire it greatly. Did you not feel that it uh, that it was a you know a disgrace or, or anything? Or they needed to redeem themselves afterwards? Or? Oh well, yeah. So that's what I said. It, it's the weakest of the trilogy. It definitely is. Um, the first one was a, a small. Euro thriller that nobody thought would do a lot, like it might be straight to video. And it was when you watch the direction of it, a lot of it is kind of handheld camera, but it's very tightly filmed. A lot of the fight scenes are very close quarter. A lot of it's it's all kind of dark alleyways. It's very confined and it's very small scale. And you know, it's talk, it's about a you know a brother grim topic. It's about um, you know the sex trade being being people being trafficked. So it's actually quite a you know a dark topic, and it is one of these. American on the loose in Europe trying to find his daughter, a bit like frantic, you know, Harrison Ford trying to find his wife, that kind of thing. And it worked pretty well. And I think because it was a surprise hit. And I'd taken two follows on from that. It's directed by a guy called um, Olivier Megaton. <laughs> that, that's not his real name, but that gives you the kind of level of subtlety that's involved in the, um, in the directing process. Now, taken two follows on from the previous one. And it rounds up that story. It finishes it off. So it, they could have finished on that one. 
and the direction is slightly more kind of fluid, a bit more kinetic, a bit more going on, a bit more money obviously thrown at it. This one, it's like Olivier Megaton has just been told, make the movie you want, because the camera never stops moving. There's a lot of car chases. Things just don't go by and they go boom. The, there's a lot of quick cuts in scenes. Sometimes it's um, it can actually be quite disjointing. Um, it's like whenever the the Bourne trilogy, whenever the quick cutting gets going on that, sometimes it's like, who's doing what to whom? I can't work this out. The one thing that did destroy... Do you remember the Russian gangster in the fight with the gunfight with him in his underpants? Well, how could I forget? I've been through therapy to try and get that image out of my Yeah, yeah so that's just... I just thought there's some things I don't need to see. It's this Russian <laughs> yeah. gangster just wearing a shirt and underpants. Um, Gold teeth and... and, and go, yeah, but I just felt like saying, put some clothes on. And no, why does the camera have to be at that level? Why does Liam have to be on his knees at that level? It's wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's stop. <laughs> yeah. The plot as well is quite one-dimensional. Um, it's basically getting involved with Russian gangsters and... Uh, that's, of course, the characters are one-dimensional and it has the subtlety, as you would expect, of a film directed with somebody whose surname is Megaton, and which is none at all. And you have Forrest Whitaker twirling an elastic band around his wrist and then twirling a, a kind of chess piece and slamming it on the desk every time he makes a decision, you know? like It seems the entire police force seems to be just going from one location to the next. Um, it was good to see uh, Brian Mills' special... Uh, forces colleagues back in this one they only got a bare look in in the second one so it was nice to see them back in and his daughter actually does play a useful part in this she's not like did you ever watch 24 well no i only saw bits of it and it was one of those things you had to watch from the beginning wasn't it so i, I never got into it properly well the joke about that you see was um jack Barr's daughter kim always seemed to get kidnapped she was so kidnap friendly She'd get be kidnapped, she'd be rescued, be, she'd be transported back to CTU and she'd get kidnapped again. All in the course of a day. Well, she was. Uh, there was certainly one day she was kidnapped twice and then, you know, that was the kind of, she was just, oh, has Kim not been kidnapped yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I would call that accosted, really. Yeah. <laughs> when I, I'm at work and someone, uh, you know, says, oh, you could, could, could come and do this or something, I can't yeah. get back to my desk. Um, so, yeah, but I was going to say, I, I heard Mark Commode use this phrase in relation to the films that Taken spawned, mm -hmm. which is Jerry action. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, um, I can see why he did that. I mean, Liam, to be fair, he looks fit for his age. He does yeah. do the, the fight scenes well. I mean, it doesn't downplay the fact that he is older and he's slower. And he does take it out of him. And, you know, by the end, he's out, he looks exhausted. I imagine he is exhausted. And it does have some good set pieces. I mean, there's one bit where a car manages to stop a private jet from taking off. Um, I won't exactly say how, but, and it is completely ridiculous, but it's well staged. And you think, oh, wow, that was good. And, you know, the action sequences are good. There's a lot of stunts in it, but it is just, whereas the, the first one had a certain air of grim plausibility to it. This one is just, it's, and again, like Die Hard 5, it was cut to get a PG-13, which takes makes it a bit more comic book and makes the violence more comic book and stuff like that. So I can see why people dislike it. And really, in terms of the trilogy, it is a weekend, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's as bad as Die Hard 5, which was just utterly appalling and without any redeeming features whatsoever. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I mean, Taken 3 was, was just passable. And, yeah. Uh, Factory, whereas Die Hard 5 was offensively bad. Um, yeah. 
Um, you know, but I was thinking, you know, we used to laugh at Roger Moore hanging off the Golden Gate Bridge in his, his late 50s. Yeah. The late 50s is, is practically, you know, in, in, the, in, in the first bloom of youth, really, <laughs> compared yeah. to some of the stars now. I mean, Harrison Ford is almost 80 and he's currently filming Indiana Jones 5. I know. Tom Cruise looks like he has an age today <laughs> since the 80s. There was something on Twitter the other day, Dan, I know you like this joke. It's like Top Gun is the number one movie. Kate Bush is at the top of the charts. You know, I'm expecting, you know, um, Dallas to come back and the guy to step outside of the shower. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been a dream. Yeah. Yeah. But, but maybe, I mean, maybe we are. And, and you know, Rolling Stones are touring again. We, we are in the midst of, um, and this, because the world is pretty grim right now, you know, you've yeah. got COVID, you've got the Ukraine, um, and various other things. Um, is, is that nostalgia's, nostalgia plays well with people? And mm-hmm. also, I think it's because the internet has kind of democratized the entertainment industry uh, for, for good and bad. It's like it's much harder for, I think, for, for a band to uh to become as big as the stones or for a um for a new franchise to emerge and i think taken was fantastic that it did emerge mm-hmm. uh, and it, it had some precedence but um i mean even abba you know we've got you know even abba were watching clones of them yes so it seems like you'd rather spend your 150 quid or whatever it is for tickets to see um Auctioneers who you can't get on stage anymore, so we watch clone avatars. Of, so I, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes think, are we are we going to see any more breakthrough acts or breakthrough franchises? Um, you never know. I like to say, I think where it works is when people don't go in with expectations. Like I said, Taken was originally meant to be a low budget Euro thriller, which probably would have ended up straight to DVD, and yet somehow just it somehow hit hit a nerve and people watched it and I mean I didn't see it in the cinema I saw it on DVD and I enjoyed it but who knows I think these things happen by accident I think if you go in looking to make a franchise with an extremely cynical way of doing it then when it, chances are you probably won't get that franchise you know I think though if you go in and think well I'm just going to make one movie and maybe there's leave in threads that could be picked up for a sequel then I think you're more likely to get your franchise uh, just having a look at Liam's um, filmography, he's just, I don't know if you're aware, he's just finished a film with Neil Jordan um, called Marlowe, where he plays Philip Marlowe, based on the novel by John Banville. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. That, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I think his Marlowe would probably be like Robert Mitchum's Marlowe in the 70s, because he's getting on a bit. So that would be interesting, a kind of Marlowe in, in retirement or called out of retirement, presumably. Hmm. Well, that's fantastic. But I, I suspect that the back of his mind when he was doing all these action films, he was probably like, OK, come on, Liam, I've, I've paid for the kids tuition fees. You know, I've got the nice house in the south of France. Hmm. I am a serious actor, you know, um, because a lot of actors are worried about getting typecast. Um, and especially now when it's a question of I don't know whether Liam Neeson had the power to say, OK, no taken fall, you know, free, free is enough. Because I think a lot of actors feel like with the contracts now, they have sequel clauses. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much if they refuse a sequel, then they're in breach of contract. So they don't want to do that because then they'd just be poisoned to the studios. Well, I think seeing as the Taken TV series seems to have 
um, died a death. That's probably going to be it. <laughs> I don't see him doing Taken 4. Maybe his daughter might do Taken 4, you know, because at the end of the Taken 3, she was pregnant. So I think one of the, the suggestions was it's her baby that gets taken and she has to bring out her special skills. So it's I'm sure somebody somewhere will either do something similar or it'll get give it 10 years it'll get remade probably so i mean it's not the original plot wasn't that you know the original one wasn't an original plot i mean when i was watching i thought this is very like george c scott in hardcore going after his daughter you know who's disappeared and it's the same kind of grubby industry that he's investigating or like you know nicholas cage and eight millimeter so it's not a i thought it's not a new plot but it's done pretty well but it was done small scale. And then I think like anything, once the further on you go, the greater the expectation. And like I say, when your director's surname is Megaton and he's previously done the transporter films, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you shouldn't expect subtlety. So or you know or, or too much character exposition or anything like that, you know? Yeah. Um can I just wax lyrical about hardcore a little bit? Yeah. Because um yeah, I, I saw that about a year. I watched it during lockdown and uh, I really liked that. It struck a chord with me because they start the story in Calvinist, Northern Michigan. Mm-hmm. As I married someone from Detroit that I um, been to some of those kind of villages and they are very, very religious. And and I really liked George C. Scott. He goes, you know, when he goes to LA and it's almost, he's racked with agony over what his daughter's going through, but he's almost a little bit attracted to this kind of grubby um, underworld. Because there's one scene where he, he, I don't know if he grows it or he puts on this big fake mustache and he poses as a, as a porn producer to, to interview uh, potential clients or people who might know what's happened. And um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously the first taken wasn't that serious an ex- exploration of it, but there the, the was, I remember vividly the genuine tension where he's on the phone to his daughter and he says, you know, you're about to be taken, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, his team of buddies and um, are, are like um, they say you've got 24 to 48 hours or something before she's completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. Judging by how this industry works, so it really, you know, the, the clock is ticking. It really gets the uh, the tension going. I mean, I thought if I had a qualm about the first one is that. Famke Janssen and Liam Neeson just couldn't be any more different as parents. Yes. <laughs> Famke Janssen's like a total hippie. He's like, she's like, Liam, let her fly. Let her, let her grow her wings and fly. You're too controlling. Whereas Liam Neeson's just like, you will call in and check in every yeah. five minutes. And <laughs> it's like, oh dear, no wonder they split up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I suppose that's a, a Robert Mark Kamen script, you see. So that, he's always quite good at doing the the type, I'm just seeing what else Mr. Robert Mark Kamen has done. But he did um, that one. Um, oh, the Fifth Element. So he's done a lot with Luke Besson because uh, he did the Fifth Element. So they worked to, because Luke Besson produced it. I did the Transporter series, Craddy Kid. So what a, I'd forgotten that bit about the original one as well. That um, yes, there's that phone call where you think daddy's going to come and rescue her. And then actually he's not. He's simply saying, you're about to be taken. So brace yourself. I, I thought that gave it a, a certain amount of realism that was sadly lacking in the third one. But to be fair, I mean, Taken 3 is still a lot of fun. I mean, if you like the first two, I don't feel, you know, unlike the people you spoke to, Steve, I didn't feel insulted by it. I mean, it is 
<laughs> has stepped on. But it's still Liam Neeson. It's still Brian Mills. He's still got his special skills. He's still, um, I mean, admittedly, yes, a Russian gangster in his underpants is something you don't need to see, especially <laughs> when you're munching on your toaster or your bagel. But, yeah. but, but this is the geopolitics of Hollywood in that, yeah. um, and it's probably still paying off in that Russians became the villains. Yeah. Uh, because they don't want to offend the, the, the Chinese market, um, uh, which is obviously uh, China, over a billion people is a huge market, and Hollywood mm -hmm. films are very popular there, also, although they're also pirated quite a bit. Um, and obviously, Hollywood has a it's, you know, bad history of, of, of racism or xenophobia in some of its. Um, we were talking about Chininimo last, mm -hmm. last in our last show, and uh, I was looking at him. And apparently, Year of the Dragon was accused of, of, of xenophobia. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, I, I was thinking that you'd say about you know we have, we have this title highbrow lowbrow, and why it's only the last thirty years or so that that noir or film noir and noir fiction has developed this kind of. Uh, highbrow might be overstepping it, but this critical work has, has began to uh, be written on it in mm -hmm. the academy, and you know, critical essays and monographs, and there are now there are now journals dedicated to crime fictions and and stuff. So, I mean, back in the fifties, film noir was pretty, um, you know, low down the, the pecking order. They were all they were just considered B films and. Um, in fact, film arts is a French term. It wasn't widely used then. It wasn't used in America until much later. So they would have just been called crime melodramas. Mm -hmm. And even the, the great film arts, you know, say a great director like John Huston did The Asphalt Jungle or Billy Wilder did Sunset Boulevard. It's almost like they did one or two films in that genre and then they moved on, which is good. I mean, there's a lot of genre. I, I tend to quite like a lot of genre hopping directors, uh, but... Um, it, it, it seemed like of the 150 or so film wars that were made between, say, 1941 to 59, most of them didn't get much critical respect at the time. And it was only in the last 30 years or so that we were seeing critical work begin to appear on them. Uh, I don't know if 30 years from now, a lot of critical work will, will be written on on Taken Free. Maybe the first Taken, but Taken Free might be a stretch. Yeah, um, I don't, I could see Taken getting a, like a Criterion edition on it, to be honest with you, because they seem to, there's a Criterion edition for The Rock, by the way, so, which, oh. may, which may or may not feature in a future um, episode of High Brow Low Brow, just so you know. But, um, so I could see Taken getting the kind of special edition um, retrospective makeover, but certainly not Taken Three, no. <laughs> no, definitely not. Taken two out of push, but not taken three. But the reason, like I say, the reason why I chose it was because you and I was both saw it on the big screen. And like you said to me, when it's on the big screen, you can be a bit more forgiving of its excesses and faults. And, yeah. you know, it's it's all about the spectacle. It's when you watch it on the small screen that all the kind of um, yeah. bits that don't quite work come to, come to mind. Yeah, the dialogue and, and stuff like that. So. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, what way would you part? I mean, I'm sort of go off on a bit of a tangent, but you know, just this argument about how long it takes for a film to get any critical uh, attention. I mean, do you think uh, where would you put the Marvel and DC films? Do you think they're going to be um, to be up there, you know, on module reading lists or viewing lists years from now? I don't know about individual ones, but I certainly think the whole idea of using films in an episodic manner to build a universe. And then bringing in television as well and building a whole universe 
that method of slow construction that began with Iron Man and then got us, you know, got as far as Avengers Endgame, which roughly, I mean, took about 10 years and yet people were invested in it from the beginning. I think that is something they could look at, the slow building, how each, it's like building blocks, like each film is self-contained, but there's usually a little bit of a reference to the next film or the previous one will reference back to it. So it's kind of episodic. That is the kind of world building that I could see being studied in film studies. Because whenever um, our colleague said, when Iron Man came out, he told me, oh yeah, this is part of the Avengers thing and the Avengers films about five years away. It's like, what? The fact that they planned so far ahead and continue to do so, they obviously have this. Now, the thing I have, the problem I have right now with Marvel is it doesn't seem to be, unless I've missed something, whereas the previous ones were building up towards an Avengers movie. Now, since Avengers Endgame, there doesn't seem to be something that they're building up towards unless I've missed something. So it's not like there's some big supervillain like Thanos that they're all building up to meet. Uh, unless, like I say, there's some game plan that is yet to be revealed. But I think the whole notion of world building on such a massive scale is something that Marvel has perfected. And DC, I don't know why they keep failing, but they're just not getting there. And I don't, I can't put my finger on why it is I'm not connecting with the DC universe as much as I do the Marvel one. But the Marvel ones seem to be fine. DC, I've just never, I've never warmed to, and I don't know why. Well, maybe, I mean, the, the, the DC ones, I mean, I, I only... I don't watch a lot of these superhero ones. I did watch uh, all three Iron Mans, all three mm-hmm. individual Iron Mans. Um, but the DC ones from, from the promo and stuff, the trailers I've seen, seem much darker, much kind of film noir, really. And uh, mm-hmm. even the Batman, which was filmed here in Liverpool, it, it seemed like, you know, it's constantly raining. It's always dark. Mm-hmm. There seems to be very little electricity. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's the thing. You know, obviously, people were short of a shilling to put in the electricity meter. The, the, the problem with Suicide Squad, certainly, and its original trailers, it looked very dark. And I thought, oh, this will be good. And then it suddenly, in the post-production, became some kind of comedy knockabout and just wasn't what I was... And I think a lot of people weren't expecting that at all. Had that been the way it was, you know, the way it was trailed, then you would have known what to expect. But the trailer, as trailers sometimes do, suggested one thing, and the film was completely different. Uh, I'll tell you one more franchise that deserves to go extinct hint uh, would be Jurassic Park oh I I mean I haven't seen this uh, recent one the reviews are terrible and and I think that's a shame because I mean reviewing I begin to think is a lost art there's only Mm. a couple of reviews I'm still I mean I think the movie industry is in such trouble that nobody wants to to slate a movie like they used to but uh, I saw the last one I can't even remember what it's called it's called Dominion or uh, but you know and it's Again, it just feels like it's it's messing around with your youth because in one sense you think, okay, well, this is nostalgia now, this is comfort food. Because I love these films. And you know, Spielberg creates these wonderful um, universes or, or just or even contained within a single film, you can create these beautiful tapestries, which Jurassic Park certainly was. Um, and so I'll think, oh, I'm gonna love this. And then you start watching it and you're like, it's like a video game it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's um it, there's, there's no life to it yeah uh, the actors are completely swamped by the special effects are the special effects kind of really bad cgi as well yeah i suppose so yeah I, I'm, I'm, did you see the last one i i only saw to be honest with you i only saw the original trilogy when they came back i thought oh that's nice but i'm not interested 
Yeah, I think you probably did the right thing there, yeah. Um, obviously, in the interim between the two trilogies, CGI has become much more prevalent. Now, it's not so bad if it's in a film like Taken, where you're just doing one or two explosions as CGI, or when I was watching the director's commentary of Zodiac, mm. um, David Fincher was saying, obviously, this is a 1970s setting, and there were, like, um, satellite dishes on some of the buildings. And when we found out how much it cost to take them down and put them back up again, we were like, no, let's just CGI them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, you, yeah, when you've got entire dinosaurs and, uh, uh, you know, flocks of dinosaurs um, running around everywhere, it, it, it looks much more cartoonish, like you're watching animation. And the 90s ones, the, um, it was a lot more, much more model work and the dinosaurs felt, felt, felt real. Mm-hmm. And small, relatively small cast. So when one of them did get uh, was turned into dinosaur food, you, you, you did kind of feel it. You did feel a bit of the bone crunching, and there was tension between these 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 moments of nastiness. Mm-hmm. I'd better recap, um, and, and you know, just before we go and, and say, um, "Killing Them Softly" um, is a film that I enjoyed. It's very well made. It's 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 well shot. I mean. I say that because it's not, you know, aesthetically beautiful or anything, because Boston looks absolutely appalling. It looks like Detroit. Um, the areas of Detroit, you know, I was taken around by my in-laws and stuff, <laughs> a kind of rather dubious tour uh, of the city. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's well acted. Uh, you know, you've got a bit of nostalgia there because you've got two wonderful actors who, who died too soon, Ray Liotta and James Gandolfini. Um, you know, a good start turn from Brad Pitt also on producing duties. Um, good support from people like Richard Jenkins who pop up in everything. Um, the, the star of the film, to my mind, is um, um, Ben Mendelsohn, who plays the drug addict I mentioned earlier, who, who, is, who is barely alive. He's just completely, uh, completely held hostage to his addictions and stuff. Um, an actor whose name I can't recall off the top of my head, but uh, Sopranos fans will recognise him as John Sacramone in um, in The Sopranos. So wonderful ensemble cast. I, w- I will, again, mention those reservations in my recommendation as to why people don't like it. <laughs> in that uh, if you struggle with storytelling through dialogue and also quite elliptical dialogue because... Uh, nobody, nobody says, oh, we're going to you know, go rob a bank now. It's, it's, they have these kind of long-winded um, drug addled conversations. Like, I mean, if you watch Train Spotting, you realise you're not listening to two astrophysicists here debate the meaning of the universe. No. <laughs> you're, you're listening to low-rank criminals whose plans never really come off. But, yeah. uh, but, but hey, watch it. If, if it helps, maybe watch uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, directed by Peter Yates first. That's from 73. The 70s was a wonderful time for crime movies, and it features one of Robert Mitchum's best performances. That, that one gets almost everything right. And, and, and then maybe watch Killing Them Softly second. I, you know, I think you might like it. And just to recap on Taken 3, if you come at it from, that's the director who made the Transporter movies, that that's the kind of thing you can expect with Taken 3. It's not another Taken 1 or 2, but it's about a bit of fun. It is worth seeking out the slightly kind of uncut versions because it's, you know, like with Die Hard 5, it got the kind of, it all gets a bit comic book if it's cut too much. But it's a worthy end to the trilogy. It's not the best, but it's not a complete waste of time either. It's not Die Hard 5, thankfully. But then few films are, thankfully. 
yeah, yeah. Well, since our last show, uh, Dan, um, about Barry Lyndon and the Expendables, mm -hmm. Stallone has gone on record to say that the Expendables is an uncredited remake of Barry Lyndon. Has he? Right. Yeah, yeah. He said it's Barry Lyndon with machine guns. <laughs> has he not? Okay. And yes, how's, how's the Kubrick estate responded to that, I imagine? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> well, apparently Kubrick, although he's, he's considered, you know, there's quite this high-flown director, he had, you know, quite varied uh, tastes. He was a big fan, apparently, of Who Dares Wins, the Lewis Collins... Um, Kind of SAS type uh, action. Yes, I, I know um, that that, that <laughs> genre. That genre classic. Yeah, yeah, but he did he did phone up the producer afterwards and say it was one of the uh, finest anti-war films he'd seen, right. which which you wouldn't expect Kubrick to to make a judgment like that. But it just goes to show, maybe um, as Richard Curtis once said, you know, your 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 films don't necessarily reflect your taste. So maybe I should direct Taken Four. Like, you know, maybe you should. Yes. Yeah. I know, I know I come across as this terrible snob, but I've got great ideas for Taken Four. Yeah. Right. My, my uh, idea was actually that, that, that there would be a new mob boss in town and the FBI couldn't take him down. So Liam Neeson decides that he has to kidnap him. So he's taken, of course. Yeah, that guy is taken. That, that feels, feels the brief, doesn't it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this would be have to be a Franco-Belgian, German, Italian, Spanish, UK... Um, Irish, uh, <laughs> just to try and get some money together for this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We should set up a Patreon account, and yeah. uh, you know, I I'll try and call Liam's agent, see if he's interested. <laughs> and um, once he's finished shooting Marlowe, um, maybe it could be his next project. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> Taken four out of retirement. <laughs> Taken four a fool. Way see the scripts just write themselves, really, don't they? You're wasted on you're wasted on this podcast, dear boy. Why aren't you out directing movies? Yeah, but I'm sure we could write better dialogue than um, some, some of Forrest Whitaker's lines. And oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. Well, f thanks for everything, dear boy, and I, I hope. Um, uh, you know, I hope listeners you've uh, you've enjoyed the show and I hope you you've taken our recommendations to heart and if you hate them don't blame us yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got an absolute corker lined up for next time good, oh, a, a good 80s classic I think okay. you I think and I think you'll enjoy it Steve I'm not going to say anything more right now okay well okay well, I'll give you time to uh, uh, think more about that one and if you've got a good 80s classic I'm gonna have to think of a good art, 80s art house uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have to think of uh, an art house film to torture you with. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, all right. Well, thanks for everything, Dan. And thanks for, thanks for listening to the viewers at home. We'll see oh. you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.